Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Diego Forte, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Happy to have you here. I appreciate you doing this. Um, you are the creator of Building a Second Brain. And as I was just saying to you offline, it's a concept that I've sort of organically I think been adapting to my life for some time. Um, when I got started as a, I was an accountant originally and then moved into a financial executive role in my career. So organization was always a very important um, course of action. And this idea of digital technology enabling, enabling us to extend our brain in, uh, in ways that we otherwise could not has always been very fascinating to me. So needless to say, the, the name of your brand here, Building a Second Brain, really caught my eye. <laughs> and I'm very keen to talk to you about that. So maybe we could just start with a little bit of backstory, like how you got into this um, and what Building a Second Brain actually is. Sure. Sure. So, I mean, today, Building a Second Brain is a brand. It is a online course that I teach a few times a year. Uh, most recently, it's a book that I published a couple of months ago uh, that is on its way to being translated to various languages. Uh, it's really an ecosystem and a community of people who are into, you know, how you described organizing information, harnessing the power of knowledge, uh, learning to learn, tools for thought are some of the, uh, the labels that are put on it, but it's basically how to use technology to leverage your own thoughts and ideas. It's really cool. Yeah. <clears throat> we, it seems like the big value add in the digital age is that we finally created tools that could keep up with us cognitively, mm -hmm. something like that. So, mm -hmm. and we've probably experienced these effects in many different ways. One, like the word processor and autocorrect comes to mind that people mm -hmm. sort of use it as a crutch now. And your ability to spell maybe goes down a little bit because we always have uh, autocorrect taking care of us. Mm. Um, but we also get, I guess we gain access to these larger repositories of data and knowledge, but to have 
cognitive access to these larger repositories, you really need to be strong on the organization side. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's for me, at least it's been an ongoing struggle. Like you're always updating the, the folder tree and the taxonomy, how things are mapped, how things are filed away. Um, could you, I know you mentioned before we got started that you had kind of a personal journey that got you started on this. Like what, what is it that got you into this concept of building a second brain? And then what, what is it actually like, how is this a, I mean, people go and buy the book, they do the course, and then they are equipped with this tool set to then, I guess, engage with these technologies and expand their own uh, knowledge repositories or how, how does it work exactly? Yeah, that, that's a great description. You can think of it different ways. It's a tool set. I mean, there are these tools, these apps, these these different services and and software you can use. Uh, you can think of it like a mindset. You know, it's a it's an attitude. It's a posture toward information that is about empowerment. It's about um, creating things instead of consuming things. It's about filtering and really curating the information that you allow yourself to be exposed to rather than just letting letting everything just hit you like a blizzard. Uh, and it's even, you could say, a it's like a behavioral system. It's a set of habits and routines for keeping information in external form in a place outside your head so that you can sleep at night. Uh, it's habits and routines for capturing, organizing, and distilling information, and ultimately for the purpose of using it to create a product or service, build a business, advance your career, create content, writing. Uh, the uses are really very diverse, um, but we kind of live in a world where everything is information. Everything is made of information. Everything you might want to do requires information. So it's like learning to be fluent in the elemental force that governs modern life, which is information. But in a, in a way that's not, it's not like information theory. It's not abstract. It's like, I mean, you wouldn't believe we get into the details of how you manage your email inbox, you know, the apps on your phone and, and getting into how they work, the little integrations between apps. It's, it's, it's manifested in a way that's very down to earth and concrete. Let's double click on that one actually managing your email inbox this is something i still struggle with this um i've i have an assistant actually that helps me keep up with it uh and it just seems to be quite the overload of communication um could you maybe distill some just basic operating principles for managing your inbox for those that may be overwhelmed Sure. Yeah, this is one of the big, you know, the big questions. The average knowledge worker spends, I think it's 27% of their day on email. So it's like, start there, you know, before you go off tackling these esoteric, you know, software applications, that's sort of the elephant in the room. <laughs> um, I have a article on my blog called One Touch to Inbox Zero. That is one of my most popular blog posts. And then we have a YouTube video on the same subject that is one of our most popular YouTube videos. So this is really one of the, the main things that bring people to me. Um, and if I, if I had to distill it, here's how I would do it. The problem with email is that it's so good. It's so powerful and effective for so many use cases. We use our email as a to-do list as a contact manager, as an agenda, as a note-taking system, as a reference system. So it's sort of like a victim of its own success. 
it's so reliable that we've sort of added on all this functionality and you go into say Gmail today, it's like a car that's been tricked out beyond any recognition. There's tags and labels and stars and multiple, it's just become this Frankenstein. And so what my approach to Inbox Zero is, is to, is to scale down email, to cut everything off, except the one core use case of email, which is simply as a way to transmit messages. It is a, it is a communication platform. And then to get all those other use cases and pull them out into other specialized platforms that are designed exactly for those use cases, which are really four. It's a calendar, like a digital calendar, you know, client. It is a relater app, which is an app for saving all the things you want to, you want to consume for later. It is a note-taking app, which is a place to save the content, the ideas, the stuff you want to reference later. And then fourth is a task manager, which is to do things you have to actually take action on. If you, if you pull those things away from email, email actually becomes very simple and easy. It's just batch processing one at a time in order every message and then deciding to which of those four places does each message go, if any. That makes a ton of sense why I use Gmail and it is quite, the feeling is Frankenstein actually when you're in there. There's just so many overlapping communications there's the flags and the stars that you put on different emails and there's many different types of each. And then there's all the labels, but the labels are really just kind of a tagging function as well. And then it's all tied. I also use Google calendar, the calendar. I mean, that that's a game changer, right? Uh, just to have a system that really sets your priorities each and every day and then links you to others so that you're coordinated really. Um, yeah. You, you mentioned a term there, inbox zero. This is uh, something I've heard about, but seems like kind of a mythological creature of some kind. I've never actually encountered <laughs> inbox zero, at least in my own inbox. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like what, I assume that means no emails in your inbox, but is there more to think about when it comes to inbox zero? And then if so, or whether there is or not actually, how do you actually establish a course of action to achieve inbox zero yeah i mean this is the sort of the mount everest of the productivity world <laughs> um you know inbox that concept inbox zero has a long history it was kind of around like 2000 one of the first big like digital productivity trends there was a, a blog called 43 folders uh, that was kind of one of the, I mean, er, this was even before my time, but I've heard about it. One of the early digital productivity blogs. Um, and it kind of like passed out of favor, uh, passed, you know, left the limelight in favor of newer trends. But uh, it's just this idea that you can push back on email. Like many people are using email now as a sort of endless feed of notifications, right? It's just things happening. Some like relatively few emails are from humans. They're mostly like confirmations, reminders, marketing emails that have been scheduled, right? Um, and so, I mean, we can get into it if you want, but my article is about there's a whole raft of actions you can take from separating the probably 80% of messages that are just promotional into a separate tab, into like a low priority inbox. I mean, that is huge by itself. Uh, even to little things like there's a feature called auto advance, where when you're looking at an email and you hit archive, which is like E, the letter E on a keyboard, 
the default behavior is to kick you back into the full inbox where you get distracted and overwhelmed by all the different messages. If you turn on auto advance in the settings, instead of doing that, it just sends you straight to the next email, like directly. And so, you know, much of what I do to attain inbox zero is just sitting there with my finger over the E key going archive, 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 archive. And then like one in five or 10 messages, do I actually have to respond to archive, archive, archive? It's like. <laughs> that's, that's great. Actually. Um, there was an executive I worked with at one point and he said something to the effect of if you just, I think he deleted all of his emails once a week, something like that, or archived them, I guess. And he said, if it's important enough, you'll get another email. So yeah. he, that's, that was his path. That was kind of his, I guess, total war path to inbox zero. He would just archive everything periodically. Yeah. Um, it, I like that. It, it really is like an executive approach to email, mm. which I think is hard. And most of us are not executives. So we, you know, it doesn't, doesn't seem natural, but it's like, if like your email inbox is a list of everyone else's priorities, right? It's the to-do list that you have no control over that practically anyone in the world who has your email address can add things to that to-do list. So you have to like push back on it hard. You have to be very, um, very clear on your boundaries and kind of unsparing, kind of like brutally honest in your protection of those boundaries. Otherwise, people will just take up 100 plus percentage of your time, you know, running after things that they think are important and you'll never even get to the ones that you think are important. That's a great point. I've never thought of it that way. It's like a task list that everyone in the world can encroach on. Right? Yeah. What yeah. um what do you do about those those individuals that are very persistent? Like I get I get emails from some people that I, they're just kind of cold marketing emails, and they'll just keep following up. And you know, occasionally you'll reply unsubscribe or stop sending these, please. But um, is there another technique? Like, are are you filtering? I know you mentioned you filter a lot of these to a separate tab. Is that just is that the the constant struggle? You're just constantly trying to filter things into their proper priority inbox? I mean, there's there's several lines of defense, honestly. <laughs> um, that's one of them. You know, I use a an email client called Superhuman. Have you heard of it? I have heard of this, yeah. Yeah, it's this kind of new up and coming. Uh, it's a client, which means it's an interface. It still uses the Gmail backend. So I still have all the same functionality of Gmail is just a different interface. And they do an even more aggressive job of filtering things into the low priority inbox than Gmail. So Gmail, it's like Gmail does a first pass and then Superhuman has their own algorithms that identify you know what's important. So, I mean, Gmail probably cuts out like 70% of stuff, Superhuman like another 10 or 15%. Um, so th those two things by itself, I probably only get like 10 to 15 emails a day, which is quite manageable. Uh, but then there's a third line of defense, which is blocking. And Superhuman has a, it's like a key keyboard shortcut. So I can block someone in like seconds. And I block people like aggressively. If if I receive one follow-up to a cold email, I'm, I block their entire domain. No one from their organization is allowed to email me anymore. <laughs> oh, wow. That's great. So you can block the entire domain. 
Rather you can choose. Email, you can yeah. you can block just the the specific email address or the whole domain. I often do the whole domain because I'm like, this isn't an organization that I want to be exposed to if this is how they, right. you know, if this is how they do things. And it's usually some marketing agency or something. Right. Right. Um, okay. Superhuman. How long have you been using that? And could you just tell me a bit more about it? I've I know some other people that use it. I've never used it myself. Um, you know, what other benefits are you getting from that? from the feature set of superhuman versus just using email directly. Yeah, I've been using it now, gosh, three years, three years, I think. And actually there's a funny origin to this, which is the founders uh, said, they told me that they partially designed the app based on that article that I mentioned that I wrote. Like it's, so this is why it's, I can't, I can never leave because it's, it's like as if someone <laughs> built a complete custom software program directly on my approach to email. Um, so I'm, I'm stuck, but it's incredible. It's so, you don't realize how slow email is until you, you use something faster. It's faster. It's simpler. It's designed for people like me. Like think about Gmail when you support, you know, 3 billion users, everything is lowest common denominator. Everything is like reduced to a very basic level of functioning, whereas superhuman has a very neat, you know, target market, executives, founders, software people, designers, uh, where they can make much more, I'd say like optimized decisions or opinionated decisions than Gmail can. Um, yeah, there, and there's, there's a lot of features it has. Uh, I've mentioned a few of them, but there's probably a few dozen features that Gmail doesn't offer that it does. And are you linking other messaging apps to that or is it just email it's just email just email so okay because that's the other struggle is that there are so many communication channels like for me it's obviously there's email there's business and personal email there's twitter dm there's telegram there's signal there's text there's instagram dm um I think those are all, so that's like seven for me, but that's a lot of channels to manage. Is I That's why I asked if it was email only because I've always had this holy grail in mind of something that could just vacuum up all of those channels into one interface. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, that's a real, this is like the modern, the new version of the inbox zero problem, right? Is now you have 12 inboxes to keep, to keep under control. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't say that I've solved it perfectly. I really can't. Although one kind of trick that I've used that is very effective is, you know, so many of those messages back and forth are kind of just like banter. You know, you have like a group chat on WhatsApp with your friends and then like a iMessages thread with your family and like something else on Facebook messenger. So you can sort of just, I don't think those need to be managed particularly well. Like if you don't answer, you know, funny gif that your friend sent, it's, it's fine. <laughs> um, but then many of those are also used for business now, right? Like all like Twitter DMS is practically my, my main communication channel for outside business. So here's what I do is ask them to email me. You know, if someone is asking for something, they need a follow up. It's very reasonable to say, look, I need a record of this so that I can return to it. Please email me. And this is the interesting thing is probably 70% of people never do. Even uh -huh. look, I'm saying like business yeah. serious inquiries, you say, email me, they don't. It's only the most serious ones. Only the ones that actually, you know, that actually have some commitment, which is an excellent filtering mechanism. So now I'm only looking at 30%. And then even those 30%, once they're an email, I'll often still say no. 
You know, like, okay, now that I've had a chance to look over this proposal or request or idea, uh, I decided it's not right for me. So then I filtered down like another 20%. And then the last 10% are things that I may actually do or act on. <laughs> That's great. The, the filtering. So it's just multiple layers of these filtering mechanisms to really get the signal from the noise, I guess. Exactly. Um, Cause that's, that is what it feels like. It feels like in you're, you're almost overwhelmed by this cacophony of messaging every day. Right. I, I wake up and there's a bajillion notifications on my phone and it, um, you know, for someone that worked kind of on the back of the house function for a long time, uh, in finance and operations, it's been quite the adjustment for me to, uh, you know, you always dealt with communications on that side, but it wasn't as much now yeah. being a little bit more in the public spotlight, I guess you get a lot more, um, front of the house communications. It's true. What are you doing true. on the calendar front? Are you still just running like a Google calendar? Are there any hacks or pieces of advice you could offer? there because that i think for me that is the most critical piece of uh of software really that i use to manage my own productivity yeah yeah calendar i'd say is the most critical like it should be for most people i mean if you have a meeting today at 1 30 with a client you need to be at the meeting <laughs> it's kind of like very uh black and white and you know non-negotiable uh, I don't, I don't know if I have any very innovative approaches here. I've just basically tried to follow best practices, uh, such as always use invites. Like if it's not on my calendar, it doesn't exist. Yeah. And I'd rather that person send me an invite because then there's a link, right? So we, we for sure both have the same calendar entry with the same zoom link, or same, the same time phone zone. Number. Same time, yeah, yeah. They may be in a different time zone. I don't yeah. want to be like doing the time zone translations in my yes. head or anything. So I always tell people, yeah, send me an invite. Um, and then I do use a, a special client for this called BusyCal um, because the Google Calendar interface is nice and simple, but it just lacks a lot of things. And so BusyCal, similar to Superhuman, is just an interface um, that connects with Google Calendar in the, on the back end. What, what is BusyCal adding for you feature-wise? Yeah, let's see. I think it's, I mean, the main thing is that it's a native app on my computer. Um, with Google Calendar, Google Calendar is in the browser, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a web interface. It just is slow, or sometimes I don't have access to internet at all, or sometimes I just want something more responsive. That's like the first thing. But then BusyCal has all these things like more sophisticated, like repeating functionality. You can say like repeat every other week on certain days. Uh, it has things like uh, connecting to multiple calendar services, which then all show up in the sidebar. So then I can have basically multiple backend calendar platforms that I'm using, but that all show up on one single calendar, right? I don't want to be like looking at multiple calendars. Right. Um, yeah, there's some other things. I don't know Google Calendar well enough to know exactly what, what else it adds, but it, it adds quite a bit. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. 
Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. Do you have thoughts on uh, Calendly or equivalent services where, um, and just for the audience, it's where you basically publish, say, here's my calendar, pick a spot, right? So it's, you're kind of like, like you said about email, you're opening up your calendar to the world a bit and letting people just book you whenever you say you're free obviously but i've always been hesitant to do that because it maybe maybe back to the filtering right the idea of someone actually confirming with you via email or some other communication medium and then you book that appointment versus you just get these appointments showing up on your calendar that that's always been a little too scary for me do you use calendly or anything equivalent like that or do you have thoughts about it yeah i'm in the anti calendly I'm against Calendly. Uh, I'm on that side of the the hot button issue in the productivity world. <laughs> uh, I agree. I think it's bizarre. It's like, it's this principle where things that you want to happen more in your life, you should make easier and frictionless and faster. Things that you want less of, you should make more difficult, more complicated, more expensive. So using that principle, if there's one thing I want less in my life, it's meetings. So why would I make that process seamless and efficient? Uh, I want it to be difficult. I want there to be multiple back and forths and difficult scheduling issues. So, so both parties <laughs> really think about, do we really want this meeting to happen? <laughs> That's a great point. Uh, yeah. Make it more costly to have a meeting so you have less of them. And I think everyone's happier with that. No one particularly likes meetings unless you unless you really need it, right? Unless you really need to have a meeting of the minds. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, especially for me, my work depends on solo creative time on deep work. Mm -hmm. Those hours long, deep work sessions are what actually advances my career and my business. Meetings are like maintenance. I think of them as like, you know, maintenance, which can always be deferred. You can always wait a little bit longer to me, you know, to check the engine light on your car. Uh, and so I try to just minimize them and do them as late as possible and as infrequently as possible and make them as short as possible. <laughs> yeah, it's the same for me. The deep work is what advances things when I'm 
you know, really studying someone's work or outlining for a conversation, preparing for a conversation, that's where the magic happens. I mean, that and the conversation itself. And I agree, a lot of the meetings seem to be maintenance-like, maybe even worse than that, though, because some meetings aren't even maintaining anything. They're just, they're either exploratory or maybe they're just frictions, right? Or just a waste of time. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense. What are you doing as far as file storage, search, retrieval? Um, you know, I use Dropbox and I have, again, kind of a, as a carryover from my past life as a financial executive, I just have these very deep, um, expansive folder trees. And it's something that I've, it works for me. I don't know that I could just throw it to someone else and they could navigate it easily. Like it's a, it's a useful conceptual structure that I've integrated with my mind so I can find things really fast. It's useful on the phone too. You can just search in the Dropbox app. Um, I've also used um, solutions like Box in the past. Do you have a particular solution that you like or do you have any advice or strategies about file storage? I do actually the most popular thing I've ever created in terms of like frameworks, uh, which is also the centerpiece of my book is called Para. Have you heard of it? P-A-R-A? I haven't. No, I haven't. This is really the the very core of building a second brain because most people, you know, they're not like, oh, I just want to enter this new world of organizing knowledge. Most of them have all these digital files, this digital stuff that is in complete disarray. And so the, the, the specific problem they're trying to solve usually when they come to me is how do I get the stuff organized? Right. And my solution for that is called Para. It's basically instead of organizing your digital life, which is just all your files and notes and everything across all platforms, most people create these endless hierarchies, right? Folders within folders within folders, you know, down, 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 down. And before long, even if you succeed in that effort, which takes an incredible amount of time and energy, way too much, then you just have this massive tree where you can't find anything. And it's just a, it's just a disaster. Uh, and so what Para has you do is just to place every node and every file on any platform in one of just four categories. And what allows you to place them all, no matter what it has to do with, whatever format for whatever purpose, is that these four categories aren't like subjects. It's not like business, marketing, economics, psychology. If you did it that way, you would need like 50 different folders, right? No, they're organized according to actionability. So the four letters of Para stand for what are your projects? What are the things you're actively working on? The A is areas of responsibility. What are the things that are a bit longer term that you're responsible for? The R is resources, things you're curious about, everything else you're learning, researching, keeping track of. And then the final A is archives, which is anything from the previous three categories that is no longer active. So it's like horizons of actionability, near term, a little further term, long term, and basically inactive in cold storage. Um, that's my answer to your question of how to organize files. <laughs> That's a great, great, simple, almost like an Occam's razor, just cut through all the, because I am that guy, by the way, with the big, wide, deep folder tree. I'm comfortable with it. it it's always sort of changing at the edges, you know, um, but I don't know. I don't, it's, it's weird because it's something you've, like I've been doing it for, I don't know, 10, 12 years. So it's almost second nature in a way, but I have to question whether or not it's 
eating my productivity or, or harming me at times um, right. versus your approach of just orienting it to actionability, which is ultimately all that matters, right? Like, what are you actually doing? Um, I, did, when did you start that approach, that para? Did you migrate from, from the folder tree approach to para or, or how did that come about? Yeah, you know, it really started with, uh, are you familiar with GTD, getting things done? Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I've read part of that book. Yes. Yeah, that was the book that basically kicked off my career. I read it in 2012, when I sort of started my professional career. Um, at that point, it was already more than 10 years old, but it, you know, it was news to me. And it just completely changed my approach to my my job at the time. Um, and when I, a year later, 18 months later, when I started being self-employed, you know, started giving entrepreneurship a shot, my very first product I ever created online was a GTD course. That was like my first foray, which did super well and sort of gave me the, a little bit of runway to just start trying other things and other ways of making money. Um, and that just the first distinction between the projects and areas of responsibility comes directly from GTD. Like he, David Allen talked about that 20 years ago, how important that distinction was. What I did is I emphasized that distinction, but then, you know, GTD is about tasks, to-dos, right? It's like your to-do list. But when I came in, I said, okay, well, my to-do list is just one little corner of this vast digital world that I'm now a part of. It's like 1% of it. So I'm essentially trying to do what GTD did for tasks, trying to do it for all the other kinds of digital content. And so I, I added resources and I added archives. And then, you know, I was doing this in my personal life. And then one day I looked at those four folders and realized, hey, they spell out para. Maybe that would just be an easy mnemonic to help remember that. And that's how it started. Well, and then did you notice um, productivity gains or like what, what types of benefits did you realize from transitioning to the para approach? Yeah, you know, it's funny when when you sort of come up with these little organic productivity things like for yourself, you usually don't notice it. It's like it's so organic and almost subconscious that I just I didn't even I didn't think of it like a technique. This is just something I do randomly. But then things would happen like people would, you know, be sitting next to me on my computer. They'd see my file system and be like, whoa, it's so organized, you know, or I hear people say, I never know where to put a file once it's on my computer. And I and I would compare that to my experience and be like, I know exactly where to put everything. And I don't even spend a barely a second thinking of it. And I know exactly where to find it. So just these little moments of noticing that my experience was very different from the norm uh, and slowly backtracking to this just four folder, very simple structure. That's great. I, I mean, I guess the moral of the story there, the core of the lesson is like, just really try to keep it simple and action oriented. Um, yes. Yes. And yeah, man, I, I think I need to take a look at how I do things still, because I, the other thing about the deep wide folder tree is I have this tendency maybe to hoard, like I'm, you know, it's, there's a lot of things I want to read later and, you know, and I, you know, you get around to maybe 10% of that or something. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of idle resources and information that I've collected, but I don't really take into action, at least not in yeah. a, at least not in a short time frame. So, well, this has been like kind of a digital psychology lesson for me, I guess. <laughs> 
it always comes back comes back to psychology this yeah. is all a personal growth process disguised as productivity <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to put it okay is there anything else that i left out here i mean i think we hit on all the big tools that i use that i was curious about is there anything else that we didn't mention that you think is worth worth a mention here yeah i mean i guess the i mean really the centerpiece tool that my work is about is a digital notes app um that's the that's the 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 core of the second brain is the the content the content that you manage that you save and work with over time um my sort of theory my assertion is that you can use many kinds of software to manage content, but that a simple notes app is the best because it's informal. It's messy. It's free form. It's like the Apple notes, you know, or Google Keep. Yes. I'm or glad something you brought that up phone. actually, because I'm, I am a heavy user of Apple notes. I did not bring that up uh, largely for the written content that I'm working on. I just have different notes with, you know, a title of, uh, an impromptu title for something I would like to write. And then I'm dropping links or photos or other resources or just writing notes. Um, is that, uh, you said that the notes keeping tool is core to the second, um, building the second brain. How, I guess, how does that notes taking app compare to just something straight? I guess Apple notes is straightforward. <laughs> I'm calling it straightforward because it's all I know, but maybe it's not. Um, how do those compare and contrast? Yeah, I'd say it's it's all part of the same category. Apple Notes, Google Keep, Microsoft OneNote, Evernote, Notion, Rome, Obsidian. There's probably around 10 or 15 mm -hmm. that have really taken off. And yeah, like you said, there's very different levels of complexity. Apple Notes is probably the most simple, right? It's it's just a it's it's like the digital equivalent of one of these. You know, right. it's, it's, it's right. even the same color. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you uh, suggest is, keeping it simple then. This is something. Oh like yeah. That. Keep it as absolutely simple as you can get away with. And and for many people, they never need to go beyond Apple notes, which is great. Why adopt something more complex than you need to? Um, that said, there are certain situations, certain use cases that it, I, I think it is worth going beyond Apple notes, but you can always switch. That's the thing. Notes apps are not religions. You don't have to like choose one and like adopt it like a this fundamentalist radical, you know, ideology. You just I've switched several times over the past decade and probably will switch in the future. I, I really try to get people to not be fundamentalist about this choice. It's it's like a tool. It's like sometimes you use a hammer, sometimes a screwdriver, sometimes a ruler. Doesn't mean any of those are inherently better or worse. <laughs> That's a great point. I it does there does seem to be quite the inertia though it might not be religion i'm not religious about apple notes but like once i'm using it i've got a lot of notes in there i just take the path of least resistance and yeah tend to stay there oh that to me that's a good thing take take the path of least resistance as far as it goes but right. when you start having resistance right like when you when you take on a goal or challenge or a project where the tool is getting in the way instead of helping that that's the, the sign to look out for right yeah, that's, I mean, that's the key to productivity, right? Is having the path of least resistance open to you. Um, okay, that's great insight there. What about notes made me think of this actually? Writing, uh, do you use anything special for writing? Because I'm still, like I publish on Substack, but I tend to write in Microsoft Word and I save a bunch of versions of the things that I'm working on. So I have 
you know, deep in my folder tree of written projects, I have all these different written projects that may or may not map onto Apple notes that mm -hmm. correspond to the things I'm writing about. And then I just have, you know, word document version zero, one, two, three, four. And then I'm typically writing in word, pasting into Substack, and then publishing. Is it, are there any tips or tricks you would throw out related to writing or content production? Not really. I just use Google Docs. I'm very basic. I mean, I would say, I mean, in a, in a sense, my entire body of work is about is about a, you know, one weird trick, which is instead of sitting down to a blank screen, blank page, blank anything, to take notes on things that happen in your life, things you hear, things you learn, things you discover. So when you sit down at that, whatever the program is, you have this like reservoir of raw material ready and waiting. And therefore writing becomes not this torturing process of trying to force yourself to come up with good ideas, but you're just, I mean, when I write, I just dump all the stuff from my notes onto the page and then I just play with it. Just move it around, copy and paste, put one thing under the other. Um, so to me, if you can sort of front load the process with note-taking, making the subsequent writing just not just easier, but more fun more effective, resulting in better writing that has better sources, better evidence, makes better arguments. It's just it's all around better. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense because I, the reason Apple Notes is so useful to me is, well, it's simple and it's on mobile. And I often, when I'm at the gym or walking, typically when I'm engaged in some, some movement, that's when the creative juices tend to flow. Mm -hmm. And I'll just jot down, you know, something that comes to me and that that's very useful for then porting into uh, a written piece, mm -hmm. you know, after some refinement and some consideration, then you can publish it. Um, what are you, so, but the thing with me, all right, so Apple notes, sorry to digress, but back on Apple notes is how many topics, or I guess how many individual notes are you keeping there? Cause I I'm keeping, just a handful, maybe 10, but that some of them get extremely long. Like where I'm just, I have this one general note that I just dump thoughts into random thoughts that come up. Like I said, when I'm in, engaged in movement or whatever it is, how do you handle that? Do you go more granular or do you try to keep less notes and just make them very long? Yeah. So I personally use Evernote. So I have some familiarity with Apple notes, but I'm definitely not a dedicated user. Um, so let's see, there's a lot of directions we could take this, but the granularity issue, I would say to follow one of two principles. One is to, to keep one idea per note. Like if an idea occurs to you, you know, while taking a walk or in the shower or something, some people say, oh, I need to go find the note that has my list of ideas and I need to go and scroll to the bottom and enter it right there. That extra friction often means you don't capture it at all. Right. right. So right. for those random, I call them shower thoughts, you want to just create a new note, just drop it in there. The important thing is that it's saved somewhere. Um, so that's one principle. But some the, the, the other scenario is to keep one note per source. Right. Like if you read a book uh, and I use a, a really cool service called Readwise that automatically imports all of my Kindle highlights into my Evernote notes. That's really awesome. Uh, you wouldn't want to, like, I will have often 5,000 words of highlights from a book. You don't want to have each of those highlights be in a separate note. <laughs> uh, so in that, I think you're muted. But in that case, I, I would want all the highlights or comments or whatever from that book in one single note. 
That makes a lot of sense. I'm glad you brought up Readwise because I'm a, a big fan of Readwise as well. Um, I, I read physical books, but I also read my Kindle a lot. And the highlighting in Kindle, one trick that I really learned is you can't copy and paste out of the Kindle uh, web reader, mm. or at least I can't. I don't know if maybe there's a workaround, but when you you link it to Readwise, you can push all that out into a PDF or you can copy and paste it. And then you also, I don't know if you sign up for those daily emails from Readwise, but you get little highlighted excerpts from books you've read. So that's a nice refresher too, to just get that, you know, when I'm warming up in the morning and I'm kind of going through um, some email, it's nice to have that one email that comes in and it's got, you know, three, five or seven highlights from books you've read just to get the juices flowing. Definitely. Um, Definitely. Really cool yeah. App. They offer so many features now. They started with that one that you just described, but people are using Readwise for, it's almost like the missing second brain companion. You know, it's just, it's just giving you all these little tools and features that are extremely useful, but that no one single platform provides. It's <laughs> a great point. Um, and the, do you use an assistant or do you have any people that are part of the the building a second brain in your personal organization how does that work for you oh yeah we're a team of 17 oh wow so you have a lot yeah. of second brains <laughs> we have many well those are all first brains but i guess we are each other's second brain yes right yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah um jordan peterson says something like the you outsource your sanity to the people around you yeah so <laughs> That's that's great. Um, okay, well, thank you for having this conversation with me. Uh, definitely satisfied my curiosity about what you're doing to build a second brain. Um, unless you have any closing remarks, I would say maybe just let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work. Yeah, it's all at buildingasecondbrain.com. You can find information about the book, uh, the course that I teach, the podcast I publish, uh, and we have lots of free articles, free resources on our blog as well. The uh, The Second Brain Universe is always expanding. So if you heard something that you want to hear more about, just choose your, your platform of choice. Awesome. Diego, thank you so much, man. Thank you so much, Robert.